right, hello and welcome to Between the Liars with Ryan and Marcelo. Hey, everyone. And we have a returning guest, Ken Drew from Taboo Topic. What up? How's it Hi. going? Living the dream, man. Living the dream. I love how you've now evolved the live stream version to have in parentheses Taboo Topic just as like the subtle <laughs> pitch the whole time. It's great. <laughs> Plug away. Uh, and, yeah. and since we're on that note, uh, Ken, why don't you give us a brief pitch about what your podcast is and where they can find you? I mean, Long Story Shorts is a political and social commentary show, and I talk about opinions, stories that are popular or unpopular, uh, really fits with the name itself taboo subjects and people are too afraid to express a quiet sentiment so it's really cool what i go over i have a hot seat edition on wednesday where i take one story or a subject or opinion again popular or unpopular and i scrutinize it to provoke thought and then on fridays i do a weekend review edition where i pick two to four stories i find interesting and hopefully the audience finds interesting as well so and sometimes i'll have guests on there as well like ryan who's come on twice now for weekend reviews yep and it's always a good time and uh, we'll be sure to post <laughs> those on our social medias when we get to them and today we're going to be discussing Assembly Bill 1400 from California, which is the single-payer health care for all bill. Uh, there was two of them that was proposed in California. We'll get into why that was later. It is important to note that these died in the Senate. They actually didn't even get to a vote. But there's something that a lot of politicians have promised they will revisit. So if you're interested in health care for all or opposed to it, this episode will hopefully shed some more light on that. So before we move on into that, some of our announcements. Remember that you can find us on our Instagram and our Facebook page, Twitter, YouTube, and we have been getting TikTok and and also Twitch. So follow us on any of those and uh, we'll probably have a, a drawing for one of our free little stickers coming up here based off of listenership. So stay tuned for more on that. I'll turn it over to Marcelo for our merch and new music, new-ish. Thank you. Now, as, as always, you have uh, our merch, which is available on Redbubble. Um, so just follow the link and you can see all of our merch, our stickers, our mugs and everything. Just please get it. It's really awesome. and It's really cool. And for our music, uh, like Ryan said, our new-ish music, it's always courtesy of Andrew Hensley over at Secret Spike Studio, 865 Audio. And he's got his uh, single out called, uh, called Misty, and it's available now on all major streaming platforms. So please, please check it out. It's awesome. Thank you, Andrew. All right. So to kick off kind of what we're going to be dealing with, something you need to understand is what is a single payer healthcare system? Because we don't really have that in the United States. And I think that it's important that we kind of start there. So in a single payer healthcare system, instead of multiple competing health insurances, you're basically going to have a single public or quasi-public agency that takes responsibility for financing healthcare for all residents, which basically means instead of having to go to competing insurances, you're just going to have one. And in the proposed bill from California, what you have is state-funded. And when you hear Bernie Sanders talk about this, he's talking about usually a nationally funded. So instead of going to, you know, I have one health insurance and Marcelo has another, we all just have the same one. And in theory, all of our healthcare is paid for. And what we need to understand about this is some of the claims that they made from this bill before they got around to it. So number one, they claimed that it was going to be a major step towards equality or equity. Uh, they've kind of used those interchangeably and especially for uninsured and underinsured Americans. There's a large percentage of our population that doesn't have health insurance or doesn't get covered depending on what they go to the doctor for. The other claim that this bill makes is that it's going to have more of an incentive to direct healthcare spending towards public health measures. A lot of times you'll hear Bernie Sanders talk about how a lot of your health care uh, dues are going towards CEOs or towards health insurance rather than actually covering you. So those are kind of the claims and I'll kick it to Ken and Marcella to kind of talk about what do you, anything you want to add to this concept of single payer before we move on to the specifics of the California bill. I would just add that, uh, um, and you know, full disclaimer, I am in favor of single-payer healthcare, and I think for this conversation, we should definitely talk about the specifics of this bill, but also on the reasons why this bill didn't really 
I mean, it didn't really even come to a vote, which I think speaks a lot on not only the people who are against it, which are, you know, many of the people on the, on the right would be against this form of healthcare. But also, I think it says a lot about the people who are supposedly for it, people who have been saying for decades that they want something like this. But when it comes to a vote, they don't even hold it. And it doesn't even come up to people to say like, yeah, well, I would support this. I guess the only point that I would bring up when it comes to for universal healthcare is just the opportunity cost that gets lost in translation sometimes. So if you want universal healthcare, then we, there has to be a trade-off somewhere. So whether it's a financial trade-off, like higher taxes, or there's a medical freedom aspect where the government becomes your doctor more or less. So there's that aspect to consider when it comes to universal healthcare, that trade-off. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that I assumed that this was going to be the case and we don't have Josh to kind of balance this conversation, but I'm opposed to single payer for the reasons that I'll get into later. But it's nice that we've got some clash and good to have Marcelo back on here. So we've got some of that pushback, <laughs> which was, you know, the essence of the show. So that's going to be exciting. So let's get into the specifics of the California bill. And I'll just go through these kind of rapid fire style and then we'll kind of talk about that. So Assembly Bill 1400 aimed to create a so-called single payer healthcare system in California that would essentially replace private insurance with a state run health system. System. And there's an important thing here because governments can do as they want with the specifics. California specifics did not make a distinction between citizens and illegal or undocumented immigrants, which means that they're going to have a larger burden on the taxpayers than they were instead of distributing it across the board. So anyone in the state of California was going to have access to this health care. It's also important to note if you live in California that California is already poised to become the first state to make health care coverage available to everyone regardless of immigration status. And if you're opposed to that, then you need to also also be aware of the fact that this did not die with this bill. In fact, that's part of the proposal on Gavin Newsom's state budget plan, which is going to be coming up, I think it's later this year. So make sure you read into the specifics of that, or we'll cover them, depending on how our show uh, <laughs> our show goes. But it's also important to note that this bill was opposed by a coalition of healthcare organizations, uh, some of which included the California Medical Association, representing doctors, and the California Association of Health uh, Plans, representing insurance companies. Not really surprised there. I don't know about you guys, but I I mean, if, if you stand to lose money, you stand to lose coverage, then that's obviously going to be your core group that's opposed to this. The bill has been said to have threatened the existence of private insurance companies and would have overhauled the healthcare system. And this is really important. To fund it, lawmakers would have also needed to pass a separate bill. Remember how I said that there were two? The first one basically said, yes, this should be a human right. It should go out to everyone. They would basically be able to say, we passed healthcare for all. There's no funding for that. In order for the funding to go through, they would have needed a second bill. And the way that they proposed in that second bill that they would have been funding this, number one, massive tax hikes on things like businesses, on things like consumers. They also would have needed to raise taxes on people making more than $49,900 per year, which that starts to fall into the middle, upper middle class. This is no longer just millionaires and billionaires who are going to be pinched here. So that's the specifics. Kick it to you two to talk about what you uh, think of, of the California specifics here sorry really quick on like i don't want to get too much into this but like on the, on the specifics about undocumented immigrants being covered by this um unlike in other states uh, i will say that the tax code many times also doesn't differentiate between undocumented immigrants and citizens like yep. i don't go to walmart and say like actually i don't really i'm not a citizen here can i get a discount so undocumented immigrants pay taxes in many ways just like americans do and you know i think it makes perfect sense at least in in their eyes if they consider this to be a human right that everyone has access to it so i, I don't really 
again, I don't really see a problem with it. And I think it's very consistent with their messaging. So very quickly, I forgot to mention that I am not for universal healthcare. I did forget to mention that, but I want to do a quick rapid fire of the problems that are unique to California's healthcare system, if you don't mind, if that's okay. Yeah, go ahead. I have written down. So like, all right, so this is unique to California. One third of the California budget is dedicated to healthcare. It exceeds over $100 billion out of a $200 billion budget. Uh, California ranks 40th out of 50 for openness and accessibility in their healthcare system. Uh, Medi-Cal, which is their version of Medicaid, more than 63% of doctors have dropped the participation, which means they are not accepting patients with Medi-Cal or they're just not uh, allowing payments with Medi-Cal. And then also California taxes money that gets put into a health savings account, which all of us has access to a health savings account. Uh, but in California, they actually tax the money you put into it, which whatever the antonym of incentivizes, it pretty much makes people not want to put money into their health savings account because the purpose of a health savings account is to really prepare yourself for healthcare costs in the future. And it's actually shown to lower healthcare costs as well. So that's some unique uh, situations about California that I want to bring out. So to Marcella's point earlier about the taxation, you're exactly correct. Regardless of your status in the United States, depending on the type of taxes, you'll pay some. I think that it really depends on how much do they need to be able to reach through taxes to be able to fund this and continue to make it accessible. And where exactly are the taxes targeting people? Because if you go to sales tax, like you'd mentioned, absolutely. Anybody who goes and buys something is going to be paying sales tax. Taxes. But it really just depends. If you've got uh, someone who is undocumented and they're being paid under the table when it comes to labor, then those are not going. They're not going to report that. And it's going to be withheld. So because for a normal employee, usually you've got your state and your federal taxes that are withheld. If the person is not reported and they're working under the table, that is where they're going to miss a big chunk of it. So it really depends. I think where yeah, I, you pull I, it from. I do think when it comes to when it comes to salaries and when it comes to wages, I do think that you should try to like shift the blame into the company. Companies that are incentivized to hire undocumented immigrants instead of the undocumented immigrants themselves, which many times that's the only option to like have a living, you know, like have the sum of that money. Um, so I, I think if anything, that's you know that speaks more to the problems and the current system has that these people have to like basically like work under a table to have a chance to live. But again, I think the bigger discussion here is going to be on the affordability and the feasibility of the healthcare act. Is, you know what we're here to talk about. Right. And then I think in this specific instance, I don't think there's a lot of W's. I don't think there's a lot of winnings here for for, <laughs> for Democrats and, and and on the issue of affordability because I, I understand that you know first of all I'll say that I do think it was a mistake to try to pass the funding and the like the bill itself, you know, like try to make it a necessity and then pass it so that the, you know, they get funding for it. I think everything should have passed at the same time or should have even, you know, been held as a vote at the same time. But I think on all of the issues of higher taxes, and I know when I said taxes, people get scared here, but it, it, it is, it, to me, it is somewhat of a, you know, you need to look at, and I think you've said it, you know, like the cost benefit, right? How much are we losing here, Richard? Versus how much are we winning here? And in this idealized single payer healthcare system, the biggest losers are going to be the insurance companies who are definitely, they don't want to lose a piece of the pie here. Yeah. And I think that actually transitions us nicely into the government feasibility. And I'm going to put the feasibility in kind of air quotes here because like we mentioned at the start, this bill didn't pass. It didn't even get to a vote. So it's not like I'm trying to like, you know, kick a dead horse here and say, ah, this is definitely not going to happen because it's not. But... What I want to do is I want to move forward with the hypothetical of if these were actually being voted upon, let's talk about the pros and cons of both. So we're kind of getting into like some debate theory here of like, let's, let's just talk about the feasibility. Let's direct our arguments there. To me, I don't see a government feasibility, even if this had made a vote and could have passed because of what you just mentioned, Marcelo, and that is that they 
passed funding or they would have tried to pass funding separately from the bill itself. And I think that this is kind of mirrored in their idea of housing as a human right, because California has a bill that says housing is a human right. But declaring something a human right doesn't make it accessible, and your funding is the major linchpin you need to make it accessible. And if they separated these two, I really think it's because the legislators think we're getting destroyed in the polls. Everybody hates politicians today, like it, regardless of party, like they're getting a lot of heat. I think that as they're coming up on midterms, politicians are looking for a win. And I think they're trying to ram this through, or at least trying to at the time, without having to be tied into realistic things like funding. I think that that, that was kind of a, a hope for them to get a win that they could take to their constituents and say, well, next time, you know, keep us in the midterms, we'll get to your funding, we promise. I don't know what you guys think about that. So yeah, just, uh, you know, for, for some context, obviously, as everybody knows, California is very blue, you know, one of the bluest states. Yes. Has, you know, there, there's a lot of Republican support because it's a huge state that's going to have a lot of Republicans anyways. But the state Senate is hugely Democrat, state assembly, hugely Democrat. It's basically, you know, anything that the party could agree on technically it is going to pass. So I want to hear your thoughts, both of you, and say like, so why did this happen, right? Why is like, if this was such a big selling point for Democrats, right? If it was like, you know, like all of the Democrats like me are like, oh my God, like we love single-payer healthcare, <laughs> like let's pass it right now, right? Because like, it, you know, ideally, I think the right tends to think of, of us as a monolith in a way. It's like, oh my God, we would love to pass this. But then when it comes to pass in the state legislature, that would probably have one of the likeliest chances of passing in the entire country. Yes. It doesn't even come up to a vote. So why does this happen? Like, why why did they not get to it? Yeah. Really? Well, I, I've got, and this is all hypothetical and me theorizing here. <laughs> I know, number one, the reason it didn't go to a vote is because the person who drafted the bill, who is a Democrat from California, she didn't call for the vote. If you don't call for the vote, it's not going to happen. Now, we that's why it didn't happen. And I think why she did that is because, well, Democrats are coming up on midterms. Polls show that in general, I don't know about California specifically, but in general, the Democratic proposals have not been doing as well with the people. And I think that when you're coming up on midterms and you hear the word taxes, like you Marcel, like people get squeamish. I think that being forced to tell people and businesses, hey, you know, I know we're coming out of a pandemic. I know people don't have a lot of money rolling around. I know jobs and inflations are kind of iffy. Like, well, inflation's certain at this point. Your your stuff is not worth as much. And we don't really have anything to show you for this, but we're still going to start taxing you so we can do this. I think they'd lose a lot of votes. So personally, I think it was really politically driven, the timing, and just I don't think that they wanted the backlash. That's That is my conjecture. I would add on to that. A lot of times when they come up with these proposals, it's really kind of this utopia, you know, mindset like, oh, we can provide healthcare for everyone and get away with not raising costs. And kind of like what I was mentioning earlier, as far as opportunity costs, if you want something, you have to give something up. There's a trade off. And if you want to go ahead and perhaps get universal health care and not raise taxes, you would have to pretty much drop another major social service or other social services they provide over there to help offset the cost. So that's one aspect you have to consider as well. But also when it comes to practicality in general, it's just, I mean, <laughs> I think when they see the numbers and everything like that, they come to a realization or come to Jesus moment and uh, realize that it's just not practical. Now, Marcelo, I'm curious, do you have any thoughts on why this, this might've died? Yeah, absolutely. I agree. That is very political. I mean, everything is right. I I, yes. I think that I mean the reason why Newsom, when he was being running for re-election, you know, when he was trying to stay in power, he was like, you know, I will do this this term, and then he keeps kicking it down the line, is because it is very popular. It's a very popular policy, which is why I will disagree somewhat with your point that like Democrat policies are not popular. Actually, we are 
very popular now, according to like, you know, the polls, free college or subsidized college is hugely popular among all voters generally, more Democrats and Republicans, but in general, everyone is somewhat in favor of it. Cheaper healthcare and like access to healthcare for everyone is also another big, you know, it's a policy position that is very, we've talked about Build Back Better. Build Back Better, maybe not the bill itself, but the like the aggregates, you know, like uh, the child tax credit, hugely, insanely popular, even in like rep- the most Republican circles, a child tax credit is like, like, oh my God, they were dying for it, right? And it didn't even it didn't even pass, right? And, and like, and the bill is pretty much that. So I think these policies are very popular. It is is just that um, there's another key player that we're missing here, which is the insurance companies that also keep funding Democrats' campaigns. And would be very sad to see something like this happen. I think that the private companies who are running the healthcare system in California and in the rest of the U.S. would hate to see something like this pass. And the worse it looks, the better it is for them. That is my biggest theory. That it's like, you know, if you manage to paint the government option as bad as it possibly can be, and then you're like, but look at our, you know, like, it's not that bad here, right, guys? Like, you, you show them the system the way it is now, and it is broken. The system is broken right now. But you show them this system, and you're like, you know, it could be way worse if we gave it to the Democrats this one. Then people are going to be very, very reticent to, uh, to favor one of these options. I'll go back to what I said earlier, Marcelo, about it not being popular. There's two caveats, and you kind of touched on them, and I'll concede these. Number one, it depends on the state. Like, they're going to be a lot more popular in a blue, blue, blue state like California. Absolutely. Number two, it also depends on the legislation. I think my comment is more geared on things like the Build Back Better or the things that the Democrats have focused on, right? Like, Biden campaigned on the more popular ones, and then they shifted, and they did like a bait and switch, I think, to the the voters by and large. They haven't gotten through what they promised. Minimum wage is still not set at 15 an hour, and we still don't have education as free. So I think the two that were the most, most popular by far, they haven't gotten to. So I guess that's where I'd focus my comments if that's a little bit more fair. I would do a little bit pushback on the concept or the premise that insurance companies would be the biggest losers of this. I think just the regular person is actually the biggest loser in all of this because what happens with universal healthcare, like I mentioned earlier, is that you have to give up medical freedom as well because you're because doctors, hospitals, and clinics at that point they're subjugated to government regulation. So it doesn't matter where you go, you better hope that the treatment they gave you is with not only they have the best treatment available for you that's within government regulation, but let's say that treatment that's supposed to be better for you. Let's say the government decided that, no, you can't get that treatment. So essentially, the government becomes your doctor. So I will push back strongly on the idea that insurance companies would be the biggest losers. It's the regular folks that would be the biggest losers in that situation. I think the regular folks are the biggest losers in the system that we have right now. Because I really don't think that medical freedom should equate, like, my medical insurance depends on where I work and the benefits that they choose to give me, right? Like, in, in healthcare is intrinsically tied with employment in the United States. And that is just, it's ridiculous to me when considering that other countries, you know, you don't have that, you don't have that sort of leverage that your employer is basically, they, they tell you, you know, you have to work for me under these conditions. And if you get fired or you get laid off, then you lose what could potentially be keeping you alive. I think that this sort of situation that we are in right now is one of the furthest things that I could consider medical freedom. I don't, so, I just don't understand. This is the, like, I don't think this is the case. So I will agree with you. The American people and the regular folks are the biggest losers in this, but I will push back on the idea. It's the private market that's causing the problems. I think it's government intervention as shown with Obamacare that's created a lot of these, you know, increases in prices because they have so many regulations that really the law supply and demand can't work into effect to balance out the prices. So really, I agree with you that the regular folks are right now 
how it stands. They're the biggest losers, but I don't agree with you that the insurance companies are the main problem. I think it's the government. I just don't understand why the government is like powerful enough to oppress all of these companies, right? Like in, in the system that we're living in right now, in the way that you're talking about it is that government is powerful enough to oppress all of the poor healthcare companies and that's why they're you know they're being bad to the american people but at the same time government's not you know good enough or powerful enough to create a system where everyone is treated equally and in the same way like i don't like these are two competing interpretations of how the government is actually like the power is wielded and i just don't i don't think that it's fair for you to say, well, the government should fix all of these problems. And then at the same time, well, only if the government just, you know, stay away from everything, then it will be better. It's always the government's fault and it's never the private company's fault. Well, in this I case. did. So I'm not saying that the government should fix these problems. I'm saying the government needs to get out of our healthcare system. That's the argument I'm making. So I think that one of the things that you highlighted, Marcelo, is a weakness that I'm going to concede. I mean, there's, there's a lot of weaknesses. I think where we're going to disagree is do we think that these plans or the government involvement or you know any of the things we're talking about is going to fix those issues. I'm going to say no. I'm, I'm actually going to agree with Ken on that. I think that you raise a fair point that we have healthcare treatment tied 100% to employment. If you lose your job, you lose healthcare and where you're employed is the type of healthcare coverage you're going to get based off of what they offer you. You're exactly right. And that, that can really hurt some people. I guess my question would be like, what, what would be the alternative? Because the reason that there's a benefit to that being tied to your employment is number one, if it's going to be funded through taxpayer dollars and people aren't working and they can't be taxed, then you lose the ability to provide this in the long run at some point. When people have an incentive to tag along on things like healthcare and it's not tied to their work, then you lose the motivation. And I'm sure that you'll probably go with the argument that, you know, people shouldn't have to be threatened with that. And I think that in a utopian society, we'd agree with that. But, <laughs> reading your mind, <laughs> but I think that, again, I'm going to go back to what's the alternative? Because in the long run, we don't see improvement to the criticisms based off of a bill like this. And it's so like, it's definitely foreshadowing a little bit here. There's three logical fallacies that I see from this bill. Number one, this bill and, and this concept of, of single payer or even universal health care assumes that declaring something a human right makes it accessible. Like these bills in particular, it doesn't. I mean, see also the California housing bills that I talked about. Providing that as a human right doesn't mean people get the treatment that they need, doesn't necessarily mean it alleviates the problems we agree are there. Number two, it assumes that giving control to the government or a single entity is going to improve the issues. And this is where I agree with Ken. I think that we see slower health care. I mean, even look to Canada, we see that there's longer lines for trivial or cosmetic types of uh, elective surgeries, but also people are actually leaving the healthcare system they've paid taxes to go into to get it for free to go to private practices, whether it be in the US or Canada, because they need the surgery sooner. And then the third one is that it assumes that throwing money without a plan at a broken system will improve it. And when we see the government pushing ahead, especially as recklessly as a bill with no funding proposal, we know the government will tax. We know they'll get the money when they do it. What I think we don't see and where the taxpayers are the ones who get the shaft is it doesn't get allocated in a way that fixes the problems we all agreed were there. So those are kind of my three assumptions. And um, Marcel, if you want to push back, absolutely. Go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so <laughs> I think obviously, you know, declaring something a human right doesn't make it accessible, just like declaring something an emergency crisis doesn't make it immediately like super important for everyone, as we have seen through the pandemic, right? It doesn't really. Anyways, I, again, I see this as a systemic failure, not only of the broken housing codes that are already present, in this state, but also of all of the rich liberals who would rather have see affordable housing projects far away from their property instead of closer. So this is, again, this is a problem that has, you know, complex, everything is complex. But yes, I, I would say that in, in, in the case of 
housing. And again, not the point of the conversation, but it is another mixture of government intervention in a way that doesn't really ensure equality, but ensures the people who have the money stay at the top. It's people with power using the government to enforce laws to perpetuate the systemic discrimination, the systemic racism that is present in the society as, as we live in right now. On the side of uh, the, you know, given control of the government and like basically, you know, throwing the money at a broken system, I would say that, you know, leaving things the way they are is also like in a way putting your faith in a broken system as we know it right now. Because again, many of these things have popular support by Democrats and by Republicans. I didn't see anybody saying like, oh, well, poor insulin companies, like, you know, like, oh, you know, why would you make insulin? Like, why would you cap the price? Like, think of the poor, like, you know, insulin companies that cannot produce this enough. And like, so you should cap, you shouldn't cap the price, you know, let the free market be the free market. And we know what happens when we let the free market be. We see insane prices and in, in, in insane exploitation of the working class in favor of company profits. I don't really think that leaving this up to the private market whenever, you know, we think it's not working as the solution here. Well, and I'll, I'll agree with that. Uh, pure capitalism never works. That's why we're not a pure capitalistic society. We need intervention. I think where we're going to disagree then from what I'm hearing from the last thing you said is I don't think that shifting over to a single option, right? Because if we on a national scale, because, you know, Bernie Sanders proposes this, if we shift to a single payer, just like California has been looking at, I don't, I, I truly do not think that the evidence is there that the system will improve. And that's not to say that I'm in favor of the system, but rather I'm opposed to the alternative. So if you're going to propose a bill like this as a senator or a congressperson, then you need to be able to demonstrate to me that we know at least with a, with a reasonable assumption that this is going to go through and it's going to improve it. And I don't think that when we look at where these have played out in other countries, that's going to be the case. Like the two downfalls to this, the big one when it comes to single payer systems is it shifts it all into government run or quasi government run. But the bottom line is there's one option, whatever that option looks like. You regulate it to the point instead of, you know, kind of pushing it along and, you know, making sure that things like insulin don't rise in price. It just is one option. Boom, done. And the government then has a lot more intervention or the entity has a lot more intervention. And what we see then in a place like even like our neighbor Canada, prices, yes, they're going to be free. But then the question is, what's your quality of health care? How quickly can you get a treatment that you need? If you need a bypass surgery, you need a heart surgery, you put on a wait list because it is accessible to everyone. Now, the huge downside to not having this is, well, if you need it and you can't afford it, you don't get it. So, I mean, I think the one spot we definitely agree, Marcelo, is going to be the system is broken. I just don't think that this proposal is good enough to switch over to it. I don't know. I think the fact that people are flying from Canada to the US to get this emergency surgery is not only, again, another example of the failure of Canada's system, but it's also an example of the failure in the United States system because you have rich people from other countries flying in to uh, take advantage of these services. Sure. When you probably have bunch of, a bunch of Americans in America who cannot pay for these life-saving procedures and are now left to the wayside, right? It's like you, there's, you know, it, it, it gives and it takes. There's a bunch of people in the US who need this healthcare and right now are not having access to it. Yeah. So I guess, you know, you, you say that that highlights a weakness in Canada's system. Where do you think the United States, if they went through with with whatever it is that they're wanting here, or even California, what do you think the United States is proposing or should propose to fix those issues so that we get the benefits that you're wanting? I think in healthcare, in single-payer healthcare, and I'm not an expert, obviously, so a, a lot of this is just through stuff that I've read or stuff that I've listened to, is that it's a lot harder to 
get to a middle ground when it comes to this like all or nothing bill, right? This all or nothing plan. Because the more options you have, and you're you know you're gonna hate to hear this, but the more options you have, the weaker the system becomes. Because if you have the, this idea of the competition, by weaker I mean like the weaker the government system works because if you have a government option but you also have private companies competing for the same market then you're going to have people transition over not because it's better but because they have the ability to exploit the bottom line and exploit government subsidies to get there first and so if you want a true single-payer healthcare system that works you're going to have to make something that is very radical and it's something that is very unified before before you get before you get to that i will say that but you should be happy to know that in case this passes, California, as well as many Democrat states, will be the ones footing most of the bill, as it is with other <laughs> government programs. So I guess the one thing that I heard out of that, and I'm not trying to misrepresent you here, so correct me if I'm wrong, but it really sounds like you're saying that a government system is so poor in comparison to the current options that people will leave the government system when given the chance. Like, it, it sounds like you're saying that it cannot compete in a free market system because these other ones are chosen. And to me... My understanding is that the reason it would be chosen, and the argument I'll make here, is they will be chosen because they are better. Not because of the promises that are made, but because of when rubber hits the road, they provide better coverage. So then the only way you get a single-payer system like this is when the government comes in and axes off the other options, and we're left with those. That, that's, that's what it seems like to me. I am here to tell you that the people will leave because, again, the healthcare is tied to their employment and the people who can leave are the ones who the system needs the most, who the people who will pay the taxes, who will put in the bill, which is why I think, you know, Obamacare, uh, there were many companies who were exploiting the loophole of like giving you less hours so you don't get the coverage. Yes. That is not a failure of Obamacare only. That is a failure of the companies who are exploiting the workers and choosing to give them less hours so they don't get the coverage that they deserve. So this is, again, this is a problem on both ends. You need a system that is comprehensive enough to keep the people inside. And, you know, again, you're hating already. I can, I can hear you, you know, like it's, it's awful to hear <laughs> that, you know, actually less options is better. But this is me saying that if you have a system that, yes, forces people to be within this specific part, then you will stop people who are privileged enough to leave from leaving because then you will get people who are not privileged enough from leaving staying in a system that is less effective than it was. Hmm. So you, I, you, you have that trade-off. I'm still, in my mind, I've seen a big government gun pointing at the people and saying one or two things. Either you're going to stay because we've eliminated all the options, regardless of how good or bad they are. And number two, you're too stupid on an individual level to look out for yourself. So we have to like create these barriers. I, I, I'll go to Ken. I want to hear you chime in and then uh, I'll, I'll go back to Marcelo. <laughs> One thing I wanted to point out with universal health care, that's something that I would want to be make the argument of, which is um, universal health care is basically Medicaid for all, essentially. And there's a study called the Oregon Experiment published in 2013, where they got like roughly over 6,000 adults randomly who are on Medicaid coverage and 5,000 who weren't. And it was like two years of lottery. And when they did these studies and everything like that, they realized that those who were under the Medicaid system, their health didn't improve. So if you're going to convince me that we need universal health care and that the government is the best way to go about it, then you have to convince me that people who actually get the health care they need, their health is actually going to improve. And based on that study in particular, anyway, it's very eye-catching to see that it would not improve, at least by that study alone. Now, to Marcella's point, I guess, it sounds to me like... It's almost as if kind of what Ryan was saying, like the government is pointing the gun at the people and basically saying, how dare you leave us for better quality insurance for the private market? And I mean, if the people want to go pursue that other route, why can't they? And it doesn't just benefit the 
privileged, like the rich people, it actually benefits the middle class as well. And the problems that we've seen from the insurance companies has been the result of government intervention, basically tying the insurance company's hand behind their back and then blaming them for the you know skyrocketing costs and everything like that, which something to note here before Obamacare, the rates of the costs were actually going down before Obamacare took into effect. So the private market was actually kind of balancing itself out and working itself out according to the law of supply and demand. But when Obamacare took over and added, you know, all these regulations, again, it just kind of tied the insurance companies uh, hands behind their back. And now the government is blaming insurance companies for something they created. I really, I'm really loving the framing of the government as this, again, I will come back to it as this really all powerful being who is like pointing a gun at people and be like, you know, you have to obey me. But at the same time, you're like, oh, this weak government is not doing anything. I should just, you know, be left to the wayside. Look, what, what I will say to the idea of government not being effective, I'm with you, you know, government sucks in many ways. Uh, you know, many times. But I really hate to see the framing of healthcare as, again, all of these scenarios have the government saying, like, you know, with a gun, it's like, hey, you know, like, do this or you will, you know, we, you will lose our rights, you will lose your freedom. And it's never the companies holding the gun saying, like, work for me or you will lose your healthcare, work for me or you will lose these opportunities that you have. You know, like, you talk about the, you know, the people who have the privilege of leaving. You don't talk about people, you know, you don't talk about the tens of millions of people who got enrolled in. Obamacare after it was in place. You know, like all those people who didn't have access to healthcare before and have now, and all of the states who enroll in Obamacare and saw benefits after that, who were, you know, were people who didn't have access to it before. Again, it's not it's not a matter of like I'm not I'm not balancing, you know, like, oh, should I go with my employer's healthcare? Should I go with the state option? I'm asking you to compare people who didn't have anything before. And now they have something. And that, you know, so, that, that that's an improvement. I would push back actually on the Obamacare. I think you're conflating the coverage with accessibility, which Obamacare actually decreased accessibility to getting health care. Sure, you may have insurance now through the government, but that doesn't necessarily equate to more accessibility, which if you don't have access to actually getting the treatment you need, that also means you get a decrease of quality in the healthcare system. I don't have the numbers to push back on that. I'll just say that I I would find it really hard to believe that eleven million people enrolled in the government insurance means that they would have less access. Not having healthcare, as everybody knows, is an insanely difficult position to be in, as I have been uh, before. Again, not trying to bring personal experience into this, but I'm sure you have, you know, people who have been in this position before, that it's like, if you're like one paycheck away from being, you know, homeless or for being in a situation where you just cannot pay the bills, medical expenses and health care debt is one of, it's actually, I think it's the highest type of debt in the United States is the one it's above student loan is above housing it's, up it's there, above yeah. anything else yeah it's it's one of the highest things and we're living in a situation in a position in a world where these things exist right it's not hypothetical and and and, and to me it's crazy to, to to see people look at the system that we live in right now and say like oh well you know the alternative would be so much worse you don't even want to look at that you're actually just siding with the companies who are putting you in this, in this system in the first place and and I think you do raise a fair criticism to kind of go back to Ken's point though I think it's important to note that if you have let's say 900 people who are on healthcare and they're covered well, and then we expand it to a thousand. This is obviously not accurate as far as population, but just for the sake of simplicity, I'm not a numbers guy, bear with me. If you have 900 people who are covered decent, right? And you have a hundred who are missing. So we expand it to a thousand and that drags down the quality of care and the accessibility and what is actually covered for the sake of getting other people, those remaining hundred people coverage, then as a whole, you've actually torn down and lowered the quality of the healthcare system, even though more people technically have, they have access to healthcare now. And I know those words are kind of being used interchangeably there. 
But what we need to understand then is that, yes, you've made it reach more people, but what they're reached with is either not as good or doesn't cover as much. That That's kind of what we saw from Obamacare. Like even the Washington Post rated Obama's statement that you'll be able to keep your doctor as the lie of the year. Like they gave it four Pinocchios and, and said that this was not what happened. People had to leave because it either wasn't covered by Obamacare or they weren't allowed to see them under the new coverage. So I think that when you regulate it, as much as you know, you're saying that the, it's kind of contradictory to say that the government isn't doing enough, but also they're a government gun. Where I think that it's the government gun pointed at the people is when they're making it single payer to where there's no other options. If the government provided something like Obamacare and didn't force you to enroll in it, I'd say, you know what, that's another option. And if it doesn't compete well, then that's the way it is. And if it does compete well, well, then I'm wrong. My foot's in my mouth. But when you have to eliminate other things in order for it to work, that's where I think that your government is starting to be a little bit more authoritarian in forcing specific choices upon you rather than allowing the free market to exist. In this scenario where Obama says you're gonna you're not gonna lose your doctor and you do lose your doctor, how do you get back your doctor? What do you mean? How do you get it back? Like, like you know, where is your doctor, right? Because like, if it's not under Obamacare, then it's under private insurance, right? Yes, but okay, if then, but, but that means that Obamacare didn't go far enough, and I think that's one of my main criticisms of Obamacare is that in the months where they were debating the issue, the Republican Party was effective enough in whining in breaking down most of Obamacare's ideal, you know, outreach. And what happened is that you got, you ended up with a bill that was really not that good enough to begin with. It was much weaker than the original version of the bill. And that was Republicans who did that because they wanted to compromise. Obama compromised with them, even though he had control of the House and the Senate. And you ended up with the system that we live in right now. Well, and so when you say that that didn't go far enough, I actually don't think that's true. <laughs> I mean, yes, but the government also created the problem. The government lights the fire and then they're like, we need more water to put this out. And the water is the taxpayer dollars. And that's where I think it's a logical fallacy, because if I was covered under not private, but under the current insurance that I had, and then now I have to take Obamacare because it's the public option, right? It's the affordable care. That's now the option and eliminates the other ones. Then I, I I now either go private to keep that doctor or I can't afford that, which is why I was on the healthcare coverage that I already was. I didn't get to keep my doctor. And that's, it, it's again, the middle and lower class that got pinched. The wealthy will always have the ability to go to the private option. So, and, and that's really where I'm focusing this, this issue that I have with it is that it's going to be the people who can't afford now the new premiums under either more expensive healthcare options or or under private, completely private practice because they didn't have the money to begin. So, so like your public option, your government sponsored option, they're now worse for those people. And like that, that to me is like a huge issue. I mean, the other thing that Obama promised as well, when it came to deductibles, was basically the money you pay up front before the insurance companies takes into effect and covers the rest. Uh, he promised the American people that they would not have to pay a deductible any higher than $2,500, which turned out as of 2020, the deductibles now exceeds over 6500 right now. So that's another live Obamacare that... I think this should be worth mentioning with kind of breaks into the point as far as the government is not, at least from my perspective, like when the government tells me certain things like, oh, they give me all these promises. It's basically a bunch of empty promises and there's more to the story. And really, I mean, when it comes to, and they're just not trustworthy for me. Well, and that, that kind of ties into the reason that it costs more is because they need more money to subsidize these or to fund these or to keep up that accessibility. And they, they either underestimate or deliberately misrepresent. 
When it came to the Build Back Better plan, when they were trying to whittle it down to this is only going to be $2 trillion, the way that they did that was finagling to a ridiculous amount to where they said, all right, on paper, these are only going to be funded for a year. So the $2 trillion is for a year, then we'll renew it. And that then goes back to the taxpayers. So when they pitch it up front, they say Obamacare is not going to cost this much. But then when they don't get the coverage they need from the taxes or people are like, you know what, this isn't the coverage I want, so I'm not going to opt into it. Then the people who do get stuck having to go into it have to pay more. I'm just very happy and at the same time frustrated that you guys have people in your government who will willingly go out and vote to not do their jobs, right? Oh, yeah. We'll, we'll go ahead and say like, hey, you know, like we think, you know, government intervention sucks. So we'll, you know, we'll stop taxing the rich, you know, we'll stop, you know, subsidizing what you need. We'll stop, you know, we'll stop all of these things that we think are good for you. And then even when we cannot stop it, we'll weaken it enough so that we can turn around and say that it sucked in the first place. And that's the problem that I have with many of these things is like Build Back Better was, you know, was maybe good at five trillion, then it was two trillion, then it was one trillion, then it was less than one trillion, and then it wasn't anything because then it was too weak to even like be worth anything. And that's to me, I always advocate for bolder action, for bigger action, because I think that's that's how you get real change. And it's not like you know, you don't get to pass the little bits and pieces that you want. You have to pass everything in order to make a meaningful change. That's how things are done. That's how and honestly, and, and I think it's really it's really bad from for, for like, you know, one side of the aisle to say like government is really bad and then they vote to actively make it worse. And then they're like, you know, it was bad in the first place. Well, I don't disagree with you there, and I'm not necessarily a fan of the Republican Party necessarily either. So we're in agreement on that one. But one thing to mention real quick is well, something worth noting that I found when it came to Obamacare and why we've seen premiums go up with insurance companies. It just kind of goes into with the red tape that I'm, I'm seeing with this. In Obamacare, there's this two of these combined have caused the insurance companies to pretty much skyrocket because it actually hurts the young and healthy folks from being able to enter the private insurance market as well because the private health insurance market, um, they need young and healthy people to offset the cost for the older uh, Americans who tend to have more health problems. So two clauses. One is called the guaranteed issue, uh, which prevented insurers from turning away patients based on health status, and then the community rating, which banned insurance companies from charging older Americans three times and than they were when they were healthier. Uh, those two combined, like I said, I mean, insurance companies, they're just not going to be willing or not necessarily willing, but people aren't the young, like our generation, like our age, like we're not going to go to seek health insurance unless we're really in dire need, like we need the care and everything like that. So it actually, again, the opposite of incentivizing, because there's not enough people from our demographic seeking health insurance, at least in the private markets, it's forcing, again, tying the health insurance companies' hands behind their back. And again, and then we're turning around and blaming the government for the problems that they created. So well, I just wanted I, to point that out. I, I think that that ties into one of the sections I want to get into here, which is the issues of healthcare that are still going to exist. Uh, Marcel, you mentioned this earlier, Ken, you kind of just touched on this. Insurers are still going to continue to strip down policies and maintain restrictive networks, limit uh, the care, increase patients, co-pays and deductibles and other out-of-pocket costs. The question is, do you trust the government enough to not do this, right? Because if you have a single option, one option here, what's it going to cost you? And, and, and I know that they say this is more affordable. There's no premiums. You're paying for it in taxes. So technically you've paid for it. Like the, people are not escaping what it is. You can look at it as either I've paid right out of my paycheck for something I may or may not use, 
or I pay my premium for the coverage that I want and I have a choice. Do I want to go low coverage, high coverage? What do I want to do? It's more individually tailored based off of my needs. Like Ken, you just mentioned our, our age demographic probably doesn't want as high of coverage because it costs them more. More than likely, we're at a time in our careers where we're not making as much as we will eventually. And we're also at a point where we're theoretically healthier on average than we're probably going to be in the future. So I'm okay paying a little less in this age bracket. So I picked that policy or I'm not okay with that. And I, I choose to not. Again, it's, it's going to be paid for in some way. Do you trust the government to not raise those? And, and like, yes, you've theoretically eliminated insurance companies that are going to be doing this, but you've got one one person now, it's the government or, or a single entity, depending on how the state sets it up. What do you, what do you think? More healthcare is, and again, I'm being very reductive here, but more, <laughs> more healthcare is better. And the fact that we're talking, you know, three young adults who are hopefully healthy to say like, oh, you know, but like, I don't need it. So why should I pay for it? To me, it's just like, you know, when we're 65 and we need Medicaid, then we'll be like, you know, oh, why is this so bad? It's, and it's because people like us who are now younger who, you know, didn't decide to pitch in in the first place. I think that, you know, right now I pay like, I don't know, 60 something, I have no idea. On like a part of my paycheck goes to the deductibles for my employer sponsored healthcare. I would much rather have that go to the government and hopefully just people who actually need the healthcare instead of to a company that is like, well, you didn't really need it this time. So, you know, hopefully you don't need it next month. I'm going to say, hell no, I don't trust the government. I was in the military. We had government-run healthcare. It is completely inefficient. I could tell you horror stories about how I had friends who tore an ACL and they had to wait six months just to get care for their torn ACL. I mean, so I personally just, yeah, government, I have absolutely no faith in them being able to fix problems. And I think it's just kind of one of those things where we have to ask ourselves, and this has kind of been lost, I guess, in our conversations sometimes, maybe there's certain things the government can't fix. And I think when it comes to healthcare, I don't think it's something they can fix. And I, I know Marcelo's first thought is probably going to be it's because they don't have enough money or they're not supported enough. <laughs> Which No, well, okay, I'll, I'll throw it back to you. If the government's job is not to not give people life-saving care, then what is the government's job? Like, what are they supposed to do if, if not this? Well, this, again, goes back to my my beliefs of small government. I, I don't think the government is responsible to provide these things to you, mainly because I don't think that they do a good enough job of it, but also because of all of the things that they have to do to get there. Like, I, I don't think that the trade-off between higher taxes to provide more affordable care in the long run or in the big picture provides a better status quo than what we see right now. And, and I don't think that it matters how much money you put at it. I don't think it matters how much time you give it. And I don't think it matters who's in charge. The government is, regardless of party, people who tend to be in favor of power for power's sake, and they don't tend to look out for people. So to me, I want them to have as limited access to the money that we earn and as little ability to restrict or make decisions for us as they possibly can. And so like, I I, I actually, I, I'm not dodging the question here, I promise. I just, I don't think that it is their responsibility period to, to provide these things. I mean, look at look at the VA that Ken was talking about. I mean, the Veterans Affairs, you're, you're not seeing the government doing a good job with what they have. And you see people making performative votes so that they can stay in office instead of actually fixing it. Do you think your healthcare company cares about you? Like, do, do you? No, do you I don't. Your I, insurance company cares about you? I don't. I think that they're in the business of making money and I think that they'll restrict it as much as possible, which is why I also believe that when I couple together my distrust of the government to provide effective and good, high quality health care on top of, I don't believe they have my best interests at heart. And I don't think that the, the healthcare industry, like the, the insurance companies that they have that, then what I'm going to rely on more is careful boundaries that can be set 
set by the government, but not predetermined through a single payer option. Like I, I want to be able to choose where am I working and I want to be able to choose what is my coverage, which is then incentivized to be lower based off of a free market that that's within those bounds. Like I, I don't think any of them have my interests at heart. I really don't. When it comes to healthcare coverage in particular, as far as insurance, I think government has no role. I do believe government has a role when it comes to protecting nations' rights in particular, like HIPAA, for example, like things like that I agree with. But as far as like government trying to interfere with the market and stuff like that and try to tell insurance companies and basically tying even the doctors even because under a government healthcare system, they get paid less. And it's one of those things that I've learned from, you know, being in the military and everything like that. You get what you pay for. Sure, it's free, but the quality doesn't necessarily translate. I think another major issue that winds up being in the status quo, even if these were to go through, um, is what about the unemployed? Because you get hit one of two ways. You either have a state like California that's going to propose that regardless of immigration status or legal status or employment status, you get health care. Then you have to reckon with how do we fund this? Because if we don't have people who can provide taxpayer dollars through their business, then we can't provide either as much or to as many people the health care that we've promised. So I guess the question then comes down to what, what are they going to do to cover this? Probably they'll raise taxes, probably on the people who are employed. But I, I feel that this is going to be an issue that will always exist in the system, regardless of how it's set up. I don't know, uh, Marcelo, what you think about that or Ken. I, I think acknowledging that this is a fault in the system that will exist regardless of whether we have this or we have this other thing is also in a way acknowledging the, the broken stuff that we have right now. Because, it, you know, it, 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 it requires a solution. When you accept that everything is broken, then you're also accepting that the system that we live in right now is not ideal. So I don't understand why you're so bent on defending it. Well, I, again, I mean, it, it's, it really comes down to what is proposed as the alternative. <laughs> Go ahead, Ken. I was going to say, I think we, can, we all agree that the system is broken. I think the big disagreement is who's responsible for the broken system. If you ask people like Ryan and I, we're going to point the finger to the government on your side. It's going to be the private insurance companies, the private market that created this issue. So it's not that we don't disagree that there's a problem in our healthcare system. This is we have different ideas for solutions at this point. As we're kind of wrapping this up, then there's some issues with the single payer system, regardless of how it's set up, that tend to be there. And, you know, I want to make sure that everybody gets a chance to talk about this. So here's the two that I see here. Number one, increased wait times. When healthcare is free, you're going to have more people coming in for trivial care or just whatever they, they need because they can. On the plus side, that means more people get the care that they need. On the downside, it means that you're you're treated on a first come first serve basis. I think it's a lot more difficult to set it up as like a priority. They can have priorities, but if you have to wait and wait and wait and wait to receive the healthcare because there's more people there, I think that that causes issues for those who need urgent care. And then number two, you're going to be understaffed for the increased demands. Like even right now, post post the, the the COVID onslaught, we're seeing that there are fewer nurses, fewer doctors. Or when we were in the midst of COVID, we saw that they were outmatched when it came to the number of patients. When you when you guarantee that anybody can come for anything, I really think that you're going to see either a a, a decrease in uh, in the quality of care because they're going to be overwhelmed. Like unless we provide a massive incentive to get more doctors and nurses and healthcare staff into the industry, I, I don't know how they'll be able to handle this realistically. People going for trivial checkups is actually a good thing. Most of the long, if you have an illness and it's caught early, that's that's good because that means that in, at the end of the day, you will require less, in this case, government money to uh, fix it or your money to fix it. Again, I think that you're just like looking at the system that we have right now, which is, you know, bad, and then saying, well, what if it was worse? And then you're like, look, the system is bad, so they're just going to make it worse. Again, 
you're looking at all of the failures of the system right now and you're putting them in the government and you're like, you know, what if all of this was worse? You know, you had a shortage of nurses or whatever, or doctors and you had bad prices. And then, you know, you had these companies struggling when they desperately needed on the government, you know, who provided millions of masks and like the free vaccines and the free COVID tests and like all of that the government did that, you know, the government was a huge agent in trying to respond to a pandemic. Again, unique incident, isolated, but it's a good example. I guess when it comes to universal healthcare and everything like that, I mean, it's just a matter of will people's healthcare improve with universal healthcare? That's one of my main concerns with it. And if studies show like it does nothing, then I think it's just not money worth investing into. And there's a saying that there's no money to be made from people being healthy in the healthcare system. Like all the money people make is from people being sick. So if people aren't getting better with government run healthcare, then it's just a money grabber from the government. And talk about exploitation. At that point, the government is exploiting unhealthy people as a result of it. All right, we will be right back with our hot takes. You're listening to the Central Hub for Political Discourse. All right, I'll go first. So I've got four hot takes here, and they'll be pretty rapid fire. So number one, government systems are not the best. And I think that from our discussion, my opinion is that they pretty much need to have no other options available to people to be able to survive. I, I, I understand that there's the claim for the benefits that can come from this. I just don't think that the government is going to do a good enough job when they get the opportunity to do so to really see those come to fruition. Number two, uh, universal healthcare has more cons than pros. Government run is not efficient. You can look to the VA for that. You can look to uh, the housing crisis, if that's what they're calling it these days in California. Like, I, I think that the government-run industries are always slower, they're lower quality of care, and they reach fewer people. They make the promises to do better on all those fronts, but in reality, they don't. Thirdly, don't fall for the fallacy that more money, more power, or more time is enough to fix the system. It doesn't happen. Uh, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and over again, expecting a different result. I'll add to that. I think that going back to the government over and over and over and giving them more time, more power, more money does not change that system. And if you do that, then I still think that falls under the umbrella of insanity there. And then my last point is hold the government accountable for where your taxes go. The fact that California even thinks about collecting taxes and not having a set plan with what to do with those should be terrifying to people. The fact that Build Back Better was attempting to implement a lot of tax hikes on a lot of areas that they were promising wouldn't target people, specifically the middle and lower classes, in order to fund these systems, and they have no plan set in place to use them efficiently, should be terrifying to people. Make sure you're holding the government accountable for your taxes. Go and make sure that they follow through on those promises if you're actually going to vote for that. Democrats are cowards, California Democrats especially. The biggest similarity between Democrats and Republicans everywhere, not just in California, is that they both are funded by corporate interests. And the fact that they didn't even bring this to a vote when they knew that it had a, t a chance of passing shows that they're even scared of trying to go against the corporate interests that gives them money year after year. The difference between Democrats and Republicans then is that some Democrats are actually not on board with this, whereas I feel like Republicans are just very happy to see the Democrats cower and not bring things like these into a vote. Was it a good bill? I guess we'll never know. So they didn't even come up to a vote. But at the end of the day, we have empty promises and we have a very bad framing for Democrats in the midterms elections, which I think might be a running theme from now on. Second, I'll say that, you know, the phrases, you know, if, uh, you know, you get what you pay for, freedom of choice, um, 
uh, uh, independence, like all of these are phrases coming from people who are privileged enough to have the options to begin with. I believe when I say that all of these things, when you consider, you know, how much coverage you got versus how much coverage you would get, you're only thinking about this in a scenario where you had coverage in the first place. Again, Ryan even used the example of 900 people with coverage and then you had 100 more. I cannot understand living in a system where these 100 people are not covered in the first place. I think it's in, in, in some ways, it's, it's ridiculous to think of a system that would not include everyone or would not at least try to include everyone, even at the cost of the well-being, even at the cost of the quality of life of the people who already are in the system. Because those are the people who will be, as we see in this discussion, would want to keep living in the system. I don't understand and I don't agree with it. I think that a system that will try at least to get everyone and not just leave it to the interests of the private corporations will be better than one that does not. So my hot take, I'll start off from a quote from Ronald Reagan, that government is not the solution, it is the problem. As California, and actually just our whole healthcare system right now across the United States, is covered in a red tape, which that's translated to creating more problems, especially in healthcare. Um, access to coverage doesn't translate to access to care, which means it probably will also translate to lower quality, which, you know, I go back to you get what you pay for, the private insurance market per data shows overwhelming evidence. They're better at doing all three of those things, bringing the costs down, uh, better access, and thus also better quality of healthcare. And also when it comes to Obamacare and other government-run healthcare systems, that's why we're seeing the cost of healthcare go up while the quality is going down. If your healthcare isn't going to improve or worsen perhaps, then it's not worth the taxpayer dollars. And there's just some things the government just can't fix. All right. Well, remember, you can find us on Spotify, Apple, YouTube, Twitch, and Google Podcasts. Follow us on our social medias to stay updated. Look for some exciting new updates. And if you enjoyed this show, give us a five-star review and share us with your friends. Spread the word. Uh, thank you to Ken for coming on and joining us again today. Make sure you check out his show, Taboo Topics. We'll have him back. Don't you worry. I'm sure you find yourself somewhere between the liars. Goodbye for now.